Hey, what's up, you guys? This is Bert. I'm the lead pastor at True North Community Church. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. I'm going to have a little something to say to you at the end, but for now, let's dive in. All right, so we're into a brand new series of messages today, and nothing makes the pastor more excited than a brand new series of messages. So I'm psyched. It's week one of Starting Point, and here's where we begin. Everything has a starting point. You had a starting point. Some of you were started on purpose. (laughs) Others of you, God knew, God intended it, but you were a surprise to your parents. Everything has a starting point. Your career had a starting point. Your romance had a starting point. Every hobby that you've ever had, every interest you've ever had, every project you've ever taken on has and had a starting point. It all begins somewhere. And the same is true for our faith. Our faith had a starting point. For many of us, our faith framework began when we were kids, right? So maybe uh, you grew up and perhaps you went to Sunday school or you went to catechism or some sort of religious training or, you know, something when you were a kid helped you to start to form a framework, a basic framework for who God is and how to, to think of him and how to interact with him potentially, right? So the framework most of us picked up in some way when we were kids, whether you went to, to church temple, uh, synagogue, whatever it was, mosque, you know, wherever you were learning, we all kind of picked up a framework. And the framework sort of went like this. God loves me. God answers prayer. God punishes evil and rewards good. We kind of picked that up along the way. That was the the sort of the, the framework, the grid through which we understood God as kids. But what happened was, for most of us, or for many of us, we grew up and our framework did not withstand the rigors of the adult world. The framework didn't hold up. It wasn't that it wasn't true, it was just insufficient to sustain us. So now, if I may put words in some of your mouths, some of you have come into adulthood and you're like, God loves me? I don't know, maybe. God answers prayer. He doesn't seem to be answering mine. God punishes evil and rewards good. I don't know, man. I see a lot of evil people getting away with it and a lot of good people suffering. I don't know about all this stuff. I don't know about this framework. I'm not sure any of this works. And what happens is we pick up a framework as kids and that framework just doesn't survive the rigors of our intellect. It doesn't survive the rigors of the adult world. The world starts doing things like to us and, and, and around us, and all of a sudden, we start seeing God differently, and the framework we picked up as kids doesn't really make much sense anymore. There's a writer named Karen Armstrong who said it really well. She's a very smart woman, a former nun, says this. Many of us have been left stranded with an incoherent concept of God. We learned about God, and about the same time, we were told about Santa Claus. But while our understanding of the Santa Claus phenomenon evolved and matured, our theology remained somewhat infantile. Not surprisingly, when we attained intellectual maturity, many of us rejected the God 
we had inherited and denied that he existed. For a lot of us, that's what happened. We kind of came up, we had a framework when we were kids, and now, you know, we're in this place, and, and, and the world has been hard, and we're, we're just, we're not sure, and we need to start all over again. We need to find a new starting point. The framework we were taught when, ki- when we were kids doesn't hold up, and we're trying to begin again. We're trying to find a footing, and we're trying to figure out what we can salvage from that old framework, if any of it still makes sense. For many of us, when we were growing up, the framework began with the words, the Bible says. For many of us that were growing up, the framework began with the words, the Bible says. The Bible says God loves you. The Bible says God answers prayer. The Bible, so, so the Bible was sort of seen as the ultimate authority for our framework. But what happened was, because the Bible was presented to you as a book and not as a collection of books, because the Bible was presented to you as, as a book, not a collection of books, if you had an issue with one part of the Bible, it became easy for you to chuck the whole thing. So somewhere along the way, you learned that whales don't really swallow people that much. And the idea that Jonah spent three days in the belly of a whale, to you, to your adult mind, just seems, ah, I don't, I don't buy it. And so it was easy for you at that point just to chuck the whole thing. I was, ah, it's a house of cards. If one thing fails me, I can't trust any of it. And it all goes out the window. You learn somewhere along the way that the earth was formed over millions or even billions of years. And you were also taught somewhere along the way that... Uh, the, 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 the Bible teaches a literal six-day creation, and you don't know if you could buy that. Like, you just, it doesn't add up to you intellectually, so what you did was, you just chucked out the whole thing. If the one, if the one thing doesn't make sense, doink, the whole house of cards falls down, because you came to understand the Bible says is the authority, and because the Bible was presented to you as one cogent unit, you kind of just took it, and, and when one piece failed your intellect, the rest of it fell apart for you. And somewhere along the way, you just said, I don't know if I can trust any of that stuff. Well, here's where we begin. What is the starting point for our faith? Where does it begin? It's not the Bible. I'm going to ruffle some feathers with this sermon, baby. I can't wait. I'm going to get emails. Some of you are already like, "Mm." all right, easy does it, easy does it. But some of you are always, the, 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 The starting point of our faith is not the Bible says. And I can prove it. The Bible, as we understand it, didn't come into existence until 300 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 300 years. Do you know how long ago the Declaration of Independence was signed? 250. 1776 was 250 years ago. How much has the world changed in 250 years? Incalculably. 50 years from now, we'll be at the 300-year mark from 1776 to, to, to present day. 300 years passed, and there was no the Bible. Those early Christians, the the hundreds of thousands of people that came to faith 
in those years had no Bible. So what was the starting point? Where did it begin? How did it all, what, what was the, the starting point of our starting point? It wasn't the Bible. It was the resurrection. That's where it began. And to illustrate how it all went down, yes, we're going to turn to the Bible. And we're going to look at the book of Acts. Shut up. We're going to look at the book of Acts. And we're going to see what was going on when, when Luke and Paul were kind of hanging out. These guys traveled together for a while. Paul finds himself in the city of Athens. Athens was the capital, the global center of intellectual and philosophical thought in those days. We're still reading Greek philosophers. These guys were the smartest people on the planet and they were, they, they were, they were uh, debating and it was just this wonderful, magical time. And Paul finds himself wandering through the city of Athens and he takes a few notes. Let's take, let's take a look. This is the book of Acts, chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. So Paul's in Athens, and he's walking around the city, and he's distressed because he sees all these idols, uh, altars, little altars to all these different gods. And I mean, they had the shrines and altars set up to the Greek and Roman pantheon of, of mythology that you learned when you were in middle school. They had that. But there were also all these little altars to all these different gods, gods Paul had never heard of. I mean, they had a god for the sun and a god for the rain and a god to make sure the sun and the rain god got along and they had a god for the crops and a god for the fish and a god for the wind and a god for everything. And every one of these temples was like a little stone structure. If it was really popular, maybe it was silver or gold. They would leave coins, they would leave food, they would leave offerings to their gods. And he's walking through the city like, holy cow, how many of these things do these people have? And so he began to debate. Now, understand this. When, Paul, when it says that Paul debated, it doesn't mean he fought. See if you can get your head around this because it's going to be a novel concept. <clears throat> At this time, people would debate with one another respectfully. It's a foreign concept, I know. <laughs> they would debate with one another respectfully. They would actually listen when the other person spoke. And they would seek to learn. There was a humility inherent in their posture that made them want to be curious. It's why Athens, it's why Greece was the center of modern thought at this time, because people wanted to learn and they would engage in debate with one another. The debate meant simply they would evaluate their, their, each other's points. They would, they would think about what other people were saying and, and, and you know, uh, debate, argue, but, you know, bounce back and forth from each other. But, but it was respectful and it was done in a way where they wanted to learn from each other. Doesn't happen anymore today. We don't debate with respect anymore. People don't, people don't really want to learn anything anymore. People just want to stay on their Facebook site, in their echo chamber, with lots of people who agree with them, so that they're just convinced that they're right. I'm talking to all of you, by the way. 
Okay, so, so there are Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, the Bible says, Stoic and Epicurean philosophers who have come to debate with Paul. Stoics believed in the reason of man. Stoics believed in higher reason. So a Stoic believes everything can be known if we just study it hard enough. There's no, really no room, um, sorry, there's really no room for mystery. There's no room for, uh, you know, for, for anything supernatural. The Stoics believed everything could be reasoned out. The Epicureans believed that pleasure was the highest good. The Epicureans believed that pleasure, pleasure was it. We just live for pleasure in the now. The Epicureans spent their entire life at the tailgate party for a Jimmy Buffett concert. Okay? So, some of you right now are thinking, dude, I think I might be an Epicurean. Don't do that, it's a bad idea. Okay, so the Epicureans and Stoics are debating with Paul and they're going back and forth in a respectful manner. No, they weren't all respectful. Some of them didn't love what Paul said. Somebody called him, oh yeah, first verse here. Uh, some of them asked, next verse, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. When Paul begins his, his debate structure with these people, when Paul starts talking with these people, it isn't the Bible says. He starts with the resurrection. He rose from the dead. And how does Paul even know that Jesus rose from the dead? He knows because he heard it from, from reliable eyewitnesses. So he believes and he begins here with the resurrection. This is where he starts. Then they brought him, next verse. Then they took him and brought him, next verse. Then they took him. Whatever, not happen. Okay. Then they took him and brought him, yeah. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know this new teaching? Uh, sorry, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Can you imagine the humility in that? M may we know what you're teaching? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We've never heard this before, that somebody rose from the dead, that there's one God. Like, that's, that's new to us. We, we, we've never heard that before. And it isn't, oh, give me, oh, shut up. Give me, somebody throw a rock at this guy, please. Like, they're, they're humble. They come to him understanding that they don't know everything. And so they look to learn. And they take him to the Areopagus. Uh, that's a, a place, we have a photo of the Areopagus, right? It's, it's, it's known as the Rock of Ares, uh, also known as Mars Hill. Uh, the Rock of Ares in Greek mythology was the place where the god Ares was put on trial for the murder of Poseidon's son. It was also where the high court was, and it was also where all the chief and major philosophers would come to debate. 
So the Areopagus was a public forum, but it was a place where all, the, all, all these guys there are like wicked smart, you know what I'm saying? They're all, they're all there, like these guys are all aged and they're all like knowledgeable and the, these are where, this is the, if there's an epicenter within the center, this is it. The Areopagus is where modern thought was, was kind of coming of age. And Paul comes to the Areopagus and they bring him there and they say, you're teaching some new things. We've never heard this before. Please, start from the beginning. Start from the beginning. Tell us how this all begins. And here's what Paul says. Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. Now don't let that word ignorant ring wrong in your ears. It sounds like an insult in English. In Greek, it just meant you don't know. Like you don't know what you're worshiping. So what Paul found was he's literally walking around the city and there's a go- an altar for this God and there's an altar for that God and there's a shrine for this God and a shrine for that God and there's like dozens if not hundreds of them. They're just everywhere. And then he comes across an altar and it was, it was worthy enough for him to, to, to have seen it and picked it out. And the altar just said, to an unknown God, which literally was like, just in case we missed one. Just in case there's a God out there we don't know about yet, we don't want to tick you off, unknown God. We don't, we don't want to, like, deny you the offerings that you might be due. And so, uh, you know, this is just the altar to an unknown God. We don't want you to be angry with us because of our ignorance. So we're just going to say, like, just in case we missed one and we don't know you yet, this is for you. So Paul latches on to this and he goes, I can help you know this God that you don't know. This God that you don't know, you want to know him because he's bigger than all the other gods. This is where he begins. Next verse. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if He needed anything. So this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. You don't know? Let me help you know. There is a God who made all this stuff. And he doesn't exist in your little temple. He doesn't exist in that shrine. That's not him. That's not even an image of him. Like, come on, you understand this. You're philosophers, right? When a painter makes a painting, the painter isn't the painting. The painter is separate from the painting. When a sculptor makes a sculpture, the sculptor isn't the sculpture. The sculptor may represent himself in the sculpture. Sculptor, uh, sculpture. The, the painter may represent himself in the painting. The author may re- represent himself in the book. But the book isn't the author. He exists outside of his creation. God doesn't live in your little, your little shrine, your little temple. He's bigger than that. He made all of it. And they're leaning in now, and they're going, wow, okay. And, 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 and he doesn't live in these shrines, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. I mean, come on, people. Do you seriously want to worship a God like you bring him some fruit, and your God goes, oh, goody, a banana. That's my favorite. Thank you. 
Do you seriously want to worship a God who needs a couple of your coins? Do you seriously, this, is, this, is this really your concept of God? No, there's a God who's way outside all this stuff, who's way bigger than all of that. And they're like, oh, okay, okay. Not quite ready to swallow it yet, but this is intellectually stimulating. This interests me. This is where it all began. It's where it all started. The resurrection. And then he says, rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. God made the whole heavens and the whole earth, and he appointed the timeline of every human being on earth, and he made himself known in the creation so that we might seek him, so that we might reach out for him, that we might find him, that we might kind of, and isn't that a beautiful picture of what's going on with so many of us? The framework of our childhood faith failed us, and it wasn't that it wasn't true. It just didn't stand up to the rigors of adulthood. So we're asking hard questions now, and we don't know how much of that kid framework we can keep and how much of it has to get chucked out the window. We kind of think there's something out there, but we don't really know. So now we're kind of just wandering through, just, just feeling our way through life, hoping that at some point we will bump into God. That's what's going on, and that's what Paul is illustrating here. And man, it is beautiful. This is beautiful. He did this so that we might seek him. You are seeking him. You, you're, you're, you, got, you erected a temple to an unknown God. There's something in you that wants to connect with him. Let's make that happen. Next verse. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. So, therefore, we are God's offspring. That is, not, that is a line from a local poet. So I want you to zero in on this because it's important. Obviously, they didn't have radio back then. There weren't like, you know, but there were poets. The, and these poets were known, almost like songwriters are known today. And these poets would go to read their works and people would gather and hear them. And there were poets that were well known. And when Paul, you can't sleep on this. It's too important to miss. When Paul begins his dialogue with the, the meeting, at the meeting of the Areopagus, when he, when he dives into his, his dialogue with all of these learned people, he does not begin with, the Bible says, he doesn't go there. And it isn't because they don't have the New Testament. They had the Old Testament scriptures. And Paul, being a Pharisee, knew them better than anybody. He doesn't use the Bible in that moment. He doesn't look to the Bible to be somebody's starting point. He goes to the resurrection. And to illustrate it, he quotes a line from a secular song. He quotes a line from a local poet. That's what happened in the book of Acts. It's right there. The Bible says was never the starting point of our starting point. What is the starting point of our starting point? The resurrection. So what are people, when he starts talking about that, what do they do? I mean, let's read, right? 
In the past, verse 30, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he appointed, and he has given this proof to everyone. Wait right there. He set a day when we're all going to be judged. We're all accountable to this God. This isn't just about offerings and making him, make, and, and appeasing him. This God knows us, created everything. In him we live and move and have our being, and he did this. He marked this out and proved it through one man by, next verse, by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, what do you think they did? these guys at the Areopagus, when they learned that Jesus rose from the dead, they fell to their knees and they repented of their sins and burned down their idols and dedicated their lives to Jesus Christ right there on the spot. No, that's actually not what happened. Sorry. I got an hallelujah in the front row. Not what happened. Um, it sounds like that because it's a Bible story. You were hoping that was how it was going to go because the Bible story would go that way. Everybody gave their life to Jesus Christ, you know, gave, received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Do you know how many episodes there are in the whole Bible of somebody praying to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? Zero. Read the text. It's not in there. It never happened. People come to faith, and then they're baptized. It goes like that. So, when they learn about the resurrection from the dead, when they learn that Jesus rose from the dead, what do they do? Some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of them sneered. Yeah, some of them were like, oh, please, rose from the dead. Give me a break. Do we really have to listen? Can we get, when's the next guy coming up? You know, like, you know come on. Yeah, some of them sneered, but, but, some of them, the members of the Areopagus Council, some of them said, I want to hear you again on this. Tell me more and start from the beginning. And with this, Paul, probably with a respectful nod of his head, that was, that was their signal of, okay, we're done for today. We want to hear you again on this subject. That means step off. And Paul did. He bowed his head and stepped off and returned another day to engage in debate and discourse. So if you're here today and you're wondering about the framework of your childhood, and you're here today and you're trying to figure out how much of that you could carry with you into your adult life, and you're asking tons of questions, all I have for you is this. Are you curious? Is there something inside of you that's willing to say, tell me more. I want to hear more on this subject. Tell me more about this resurrection. Tell me more about how it all began. And start from the beginning. If you've got that in you, because guys, all it takes is a little bit of faith, just a little bit, to begin this journey. And sometimes that faith begins with good old-fashioned intellectual curiosity. I know I don't know everything, and I'd like to know more. Could, could I hear some more on this subject? If that's you, stick around. This is an eight-week series. We're going to walk all the way through what we believe. And there is no better time than now to join a community group. 
If you want to talk to some other people who are asking these questions, sign up now. Go to the information table. Go to the welcome desk. Make yourself known. Use the app. Do whatever you got to do. But plug into a group of other people who are asking the same questions. If you're in a community group, you got two questions this week. These are the two questions I want you to ask in your community groups. One, what was the starting point for your faith? And two, has your faith sustained you over the years, or have you had to sustain it. Discuss that in your community groups, and we're going to pick it right up here next week for part two of Starting Point. And with that, let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you so much that we could start from the beginning, that we could go back to the text and start from the beginning and, and, and learn a few things and pick up a few things. Father, we've all, we've all gone astray. We've all we kind of all just need a do-over. We need to begin again. We need to start this again and remember what this journey is about and how it all began so many thousands of years ago. Thank you, Father, for the resurrection. And thank you for just a tiny bit of faith in each of us. Thank you for a tiny, tiny bit of curiosity in each of us to just want to hear more. Father, I pray you'll water that seed and that it will grow for every single person here, myself included. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks once again for taking the time to listen. It's an honor to have you with us. If you'd like to support our church financially and help us continue to put this content out there for free, that would be a really big deal to us. We're completely supported by the contributions of the people that come to our church. And if you'd like to help, you can do that online at truenorthchurch.net slash give, or you can do it with a text message. Just text the word True North to 77977 on your cell phone and you'll get a prompt leading you through how to do that. Thanks again for dialing in. See you soon. Bye-bye.